This is Chapter 2, Book 3 of A Journey in Other Worlds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. A Journey in Other Worlds, Book 3, Chapter 2, The Spirit's First Visit. Greetings and congratulations, he said. Man has steadfastly striven to rise, and we see the results in you. I have always believed in the existence of spirits, said Cortland, but never expected to see one with my natural eyes. And you never will, in its spiritual state, replied the shade, unless you supplement sight with reason. A spirit has merely existence, entity, and will, and is entirely invisible to your eyes. How is it, then, that we see and hear you? asked Cortland. Are you a man, or a specter that is able to affect our senses? I was a man, replied the spirit, and I have given myself visible and tangible form to warn you of danger. My colleagues and I watched you when you left the cylinder, and when you shot the birds, and, seeing your doom in the air, have been trying to communicate with you. What were the strange shadows and prismatic colors that kept passing across our table? asked Bearwarden. They were the obstructions and refractions of light caused by spirits trying to take shape, replied the shade. Do you mind our asking you questions? said Cortland. No, replied their visitor. If I can, I will answer them. Then said Cortland, how is it that, of the several spirits that tried to become embodied, we see but one, namely you? That, said the shade, is because no natural law is broken. On earth one man can learn a handicraft better in a few days than another in a month, while some can solve with ease a mathematical problem that others could never grasp. So it is here. Perhaps I was in a favorable frame of mind on dying, for the so-called supernatural always interested me on earth, or I had a natural aptitude for these things for soon after death I was able to affect the senses of the friends I had left. "'Are we to understand, then,' asked Cortland, "'that the reason more of our departed do not reappear to us is because they cannot?' "'Precisely,' replied the shade. "'But though the percentage of those that can return and reappear on earth is small, their number is fairly large. History has many cases.' We know that the prophet Samuel raised the witch of Endor at the behest of Saul, that Moses and Elias became visible in the transfiguration, and that after his crucifixion and burial Christ returned to his disciples, and was seen and heard by many others. How, said Bearwarden deferentially, do you occupy your time? Time, replied the spirit has not the same significance to us that it has to you. You know that while the earth rotates in twenty-four hours, 
this planet takes about ten, and the sun turns on its own axis but once in a terrestrial month, while the years of the planets vary from less than three months for Mercury to Neptune's one hundred and sixty-four years. Being insensible to heat and cold, darkness and light, we have no more changing seasons, neither is there any night. When a man dies, he continued with solemnity, he comes at once into the enjoyment of senses vastly keener than any be possessed before. Our eyes, if such they can be called, are both microscopes and telescopes, the change in focus being effected as instantaneously as thought, enabling us to perceive the smallest microbe or disease germ, and to see the planets that revolve about the stars. The step of a fly is to us as audible as the tramp of a regiment, while we hear the mechanical and chemical action of a snake's poison on the blood of any poor creature bitten as plainly as the waves on the shore. We also have a chemical and electrical sense, showing us what effect different substances will have on one another, and what changes to expect in the weather. The most complex and subtle of our senses, however, is a sort of second sight that we call intuition, or prescience, which we are still studying to perfect and understand. With our eyes closed it reveals to us approaching astronomical and other bodies, or what is happening on the other side of the planet, and enables us to view the future as you do the past. The eyes of all but the highest angels require some light, and can be dazzled by an excess, but this attribute of divinity nothing can obscure, and it is the sense that will first enable us to know God. By means of these new and sharpened faculties which, like children, we are continually learning to use to better advantage, we constantly increase our knowledge, and this is next to our greatest happiness. Is there any limit, asked Bearwarden, to human progress on the earth? Practically none, replied the spirit. Progress depends largely on your command of the forces of nature. At present your principal sources of power are food, fuel, electricity, the heat of the interior of the earth, wind, and tide. From the first two, you cannot expect much more than now, but from the internal heat, everywhere available, trade winds, and falling water, as at Niagara, and from tides, you can obtain power almost without limit. Were this all, however, your progress would be slow, but the Eternal, realizing the shortness of your lives, has given you power with which to rend the globe. You have the action of all uncombined chemicals, atmospheric electricity, the excess or froth of which you now see in thunderstorms, and the electricity and magnetism of your own bodies. There is also molecular and sympathetic vibration, by which Joshua not understandingly leveled the walls of Jericho, and the power of your minds 
over matter, but little more developed now than when I moved in the flesh upon the earth. By lowering large quantities of high-powered explosives to the deepest parts of the ocean bed, and exploding them there, you can produce chasms through which some water will be forced towards the heated interior by the enormous pressure of its own weight. At a comparatively slight depth it will be converted into steam and produce an earthquake. This will so enlarge your chasm that a great volume of water will rush into the red-hot interior, which will cause a series of such terrific eruptions that large islands will be upheaved. By the reduction of the heat of that part of the interior there will also be a shrinkage, which, in connection with the explosions, will cause the earth's solid crust to be thrown up in folds till whole continents appear. Some of the water displaced by the new land will also, as a result of the cooling, be able permanently to penetrate farther, thereby decreasing by that much the amount of water in the oceans, so that the tide level in your existing seaports will be but slightly changed. By persevering in this work you will become so skilled that it will be possible to evoke land of whatever kind you wish at any place, and by having high tableland at the equator, sloping off into low plains towards north and south, and maintaining volcanoes in eruption at the poles to throw out heat and start warm ocean currents, it will be possible, in connection with the change you are now making in the axis, to render the conditions of life so easy that the earth will support a far larger number of souls. With the powers at your disposal you can also alter and improve existing continents and thereby still further increase the number of the children of men. Perhaps with mild climate, fertile soil, and decreased struggle for existence, man will develop his spiritual side. Finally, you have apergy, one of the highest forces, for it puts you almost on a plane with angels, and with it you have already visited Jupiter and Saturn. It was impossible that man should remain chained to the earth during the entire life of his race, like an inferior animal or a mineral, lower even in the freedom of body than birds. Heretofore you have, as I have said, seen but one side in many workings of nature, as if you had discovered either negative or positive electricity, but not both for gravitation and apergy are as inseparably combined in the rest of the universe as those two, separated temporarily on earth that the discovery of the utilization of one with the other might serve as an incentive to your minds. You saw it in nature, on Jupiter, in the case of several creatures, suspecting it in the boa constrictor and will of the wisp and jellyfish and have standing illustrations of it in all tailed comets, luminosity in the case of large bodies being one manifestation, in the rings of this planet, and in the molecular motion and porosity of all gases, liquids, and solids on earth, since what else is it that keeps the molecules apart? Heat 
serving merely to increase its power. God made man in his own image. Does it not stand to reason that he will allow him to continue to become more and more like himself? Would he begrudge him the power to move mountains through the intelligent application of nature's laws, when he himself said they might be moved by faith? So far you have been content to use the mechanical power of water, its momentum or dead weight merely. To attain a much higher civilization you must break it up chemically and use its constituent gases. How, asked Bearwarden, can this be done? Force superheated steam, replied the spirit, through an intensely heated substance, as you now do in making water gas, preferably platinum heated by electricity. Apply an apergetic shock, and the oxygen and hydrogen will separate like oil and water, the oxygen being so much the heavier. Lead them in different directions as fast as the water is decomposed, since otherwise they would reunite, and your supply of power would be inexhaustible. "'Will you not stay and dine with us?' asked Errol. "'While in the flesh you must be subject to its laws, and must need food to maintain your strength like ourselves.' "'It will give me great pleasure,' replied the spirit, "'to tarry with you, and once more to taste earthly food, but most of all to have the blessed joy of being of service to you. Here, all being immaterial spirits, no physical injury can befall any of us, and since no one wants anything that anyone else can give, we have no opportunity of doing anything for each other. You see, we neither eat nor sleep. Neither can any of us again know physical pain or death, nor can we comfort one another, for everyone knows the truth about himself and everyone else, and we read one another's thoughts as an open book. Do you, asked Bearwarden, not eat at all? We absorb vitality in a sense, replied the spirit. As the sun contains certain substances into food for mortals, it also produces molecular vibration and charges the air with magnetism and electricity, which we absorb without effort. In fact, there is a faint pleasure in the absorption of this strength, when in magnetic disturbances there is an unusual amount of immortal food. Should we try to resist it, there would eventually be a greater pressure without than within, and we should assimilate involuntarily. We are part of the intangible universe, and can feel no hunger that is not instantly appeased, neither can we ever more know thirst. Why, asked Cortland reverently, did the angel with the sword of flame drive Adam from the tree of life? since with his soul he had received that which he could never die. That was part of the mercy of God, the shade replied, for immortality can be enjoyed but meagerly on earth, where natural limitations are so abrupt. And know this, ye who are something of chemists, that had Adam eaten of that substance called fruit, 
he would have lived in the flesh to this day, and would have been of all men the most unhappy. "'Will the fountain of youth ever be discovered?' asked Cortland. "'That substances exist,' replied the spirit, "'that render it impossible for the germs of old age and decay to lodge in the body, I know. In fact, it would be a break in the continuity and balance of nature, did they not. But I believe their discovery will be coincident with Christ's second visible advent on earth. You are, however, only on the shore of the ocean of knowledge. And, by continuing to advance in geometric ratio, will soon be able to retain your mortal bodies till the average longevity exceeds Methuselah's. But, except for more opportunities of doing good, or setting a longer example to your fellows by your lives, where would be the gain? I now see what appeared to me while I lived on earth insignificant incidents were the acts of God, and that what I thought injustice or misfortune was but evidence of his wisdom and love. For we know that not a sparrow falleth without God, and that the hairs of our heads are numbered. Every act of kindness or unselfishness on my part also stands out like a golden letter or a white stone, and gives me unspeakable comfort. At the last judgment, and in eternity following, we shall have very different but just as real bodies as those that we possessed in the flesh. The dead at the last trump will rise clothed in them, and at that time the souls in paradise will receive them also. I wonder, thought Errol, on which hand we shall be placed in that last day. The classification is now going on, said the spirit, answering his thought, and I know that in the final judgment each individual will range himself automatically on his proper side. Do tell me, said Errol, how were you able to answer my thought? I see the vibrations of the gray matter of your brain as plainly as the movements of your lips. In fact, I see the thoughts in the embryonic stage taking shape. When their meal was ready they sat down, Errol placing the spirit on his right, with Cortland on his left, and having Bearwarden opposite. On this occasion their chief had given them a particularly good dinner, but the spirit took only a slice of meat and a glass of claret. "'Won't you tell us the story of your life?' said Errol to the spirit, "'and your experiences since your death.' they would be of tremendous interest to us. I was a bishop in one of the Atlantic states, replied the spirit gravely, and died shortly before the Civil War. People came from other cities to hear my sermons, and the biographical writers have honored my memory by saying that I was a great man. I was contemporaneous with Daniel Webster and Henry Clay. Shortly after I reached threescore and ten, According to earthly years, I caught what I considered only a slight cold, for I had always had good health, but it became pneumonia. My friends, children, and grandchildren came to see me, and all seemed going well, 
when without warning my physician told me I had but a few hours to live. I could scarcely believe my ears, and though as a churchman I had ministered to others and had always tried to lead a good life, I was greatly shocked. I suddenly remembered all the things I had left undone, and all the things I intended to do, and the old saying, Hell is paved with good intentions, crossed my mind very forcibly. In less than an hour I saw the physician was right. I grew weaker, and my pulse fluttered, but my mind remained clear. I prayed to my Creator with all my soul, O oh, spare me a little, that I may recover my strength, before I go hence, and be no more seen. As if for an answer, the thought crossed my brain, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt not live, but die. I then called my children, and made disposition of such of my property and personal effects as were not covered by my will. I also gave to each the advice that my experience had shown me he or she needed. Then came another wave of remorse and regret, and again an intense longing to pray. But along with the thought of sins and neglected duties came also the memory of the honest efforts I had made to obey my conscience, and these were like rifts of sunshine during a storm. These thoughts and the blessed promises of religion I had so often preached in the churches of my diocese were an indescribable comfort, and saved me from the depths of blank despair. Finally my breathing became labored, I had sharp spasms of pain, and my pulse almost stopped. I felt that I was dying, and my sight grew dim. The crisis and climax of life were at hand. Oh, I thought, with the philosophers and sages, is it to this end I lived? The flower appears, briefly blooms amid troublous toil, and is gone. My body returns to its primordial dust, and my works are buried in oblivion. The paths of life and glory lead but to the grave. My soul was filled with conflicting thoughts, and for a moment even my faith seemed at a low ebb. I could hear my children's stifled sobs, and my darling wife shed silent tears. The thought of parting from them gave me the bitterest wrench. With my fleeting breath I gasped these words, That mercy I showed others, that show thou me. The darkened room grew darker, and after that I died. In my sleep I seemed to dream. All about were refined and heavenly flowers, while the most delightful sounds and perfumes filled the air. Gradually the vision became more distinct, and I experienced an indescribable feeling of peace and repose. I passed through fields and scenes I had never seen before, while every place was filled with an all-pervading light. Sometimes I seemed to be miles in the air. Countless suns and their planets shone, and dazzled my eyes 
while no bird of paradise was as happy or free as I. Gradually it came to me that I was awake, and that it was no dream. Then I remembered my last moments, and perceived that I had died. Death had brought me freedom. My work in the flesh was ended. I was indeed alive. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? In my dying moments I had forgotten what I had so often preached. Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. In a moment my life lay before me like a valley or an open page. All along its paths and waysides I saw the little seeds of word and deed that I had sown extending and bearing fruit forever for good or evil. I then saw things as they were, and realized the faultiness of my former conclusions, based as they had been on the incomplete knowledge obtained through embryonic senses. I also saw the divine purpose in life as the design in a piece of tapestry, whereas before I had seen but the wrong side. It is not till we have lost the life in the flesh that we realize its dignity and value, for every hour gives us opportunities of helping or elevating some human being, it may be ourselves, of doing something in His service. Now that time has passed, the books are closed, and we can do nothing further ourselves to alter our status for eternity however much we may wish to. It is on this account, and not merely to save you from death, which in itself is nothing, that I now tell you to run to the Callisto, seal the doors hermetically, and come not forth till a sudden rush of air that you will see on the trees has passed. A gust in which even birds drop dead if they are unable to escape, will be here when you reach safety. Do not delay to take this food, and eat none of it when you return, for it will be filled with poisonous germs. "'How can we find you?' asked Errol, grasping his hand. "'You must not leave us till we know how we can see you again.' "'Think hard and steadfastly of me, you three replied the spirit, if you want me, and I shall feel your thought, saying which, he vanished before their eyes, and the three friends ran to the Callisto. This is the end of chapter two, in book three, of A Journey in Other Worlds, recording by Tom Weiss.